What indeed we are in Acts chapter 2, the latter half of that magnificent sermon that Peter delivered on that first day of Pentecost as the Spirit was poured out upon them. We saw last week, as Pastor Phil was reminding us, as Peter preached and gave explanation to indeed what was going on, this this magnificent and jaw-dropping phenomenon of the Spirit being poured out upon the disciples there in Jerusalem and Peter being charged among the disciples by the Holy Spirit to give explanation to what was going on. But not only does he give explanation, beloved, but then he gives an exhortation and a proclamation. The first part of his sermon there was really just an explanation, wasn't it, of what was happening. Put it in the context of the prophecy of Joel and said, this is what God has promised. And now, in the latter half of this sermon, he gives the exhortation and then he, and he gives the proclamation. Indeed, this is what real preaching is. I mean, preaching has been and continues to be God's design for gospel proclamation and explanation in the world and in the church. Has been from the very beginning. It is through, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, that the foolishness of preaching that God has ordained salvation. The foolishness of preaching, not foolish preaching, but the foolishness of preaching. That God has ordained salvation, and therefore we preach. Therefore we proclaim. Therefore we exhort to the world. We are called to preach the gospel. Paul reminds us that, especially where the gospel has not been named in, in Romans chapter 15 and, and verse 20. It was his desire to go and preach in the world, particularly where the gospel had not already been named to proclaim. But not only preach in the world, the Bible reminds us that this preaching is to be done in the church. The preaching that forms the church, that fashions the church, that feeds the church. God's people. And this is why Paul could tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Timothy, preach the word. Preach it in season. Preach it out of season. Preach it when they won't want to hear it. You preach it. In fact, when he writes to the Christians gathered in Rome, these Christians whom he had never met, when he writes this magnum opus to them of theological exposition of the gospel, he begins by saying, I desire to come to you that I might preach the gospel to you. Because Paul understood that the point of preaching is the, is the proclamation and explanation of the gospel in the world, but also in the church. It forms us. It fashions us. Indeed, it makes us. It's what God uses to make us into the image of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are washed by the Word. And so we preach. 
Therefore, it should not surprise us that on this unforgettable day that we know as Pentecost in in the history of God's people, the Spirit of God is poured out upon the world. And we see at the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see accompanied with that preaching. Preaching. What type of preaching do we see there? We see spirit-filled preaching. The Spirit is poured out upon Peter, and as Pastor Phil reminds us, this Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and begins to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's spirit-filled preaching. But not only spirit-filled preaching, it's Bible-based preaching. Peter just doesn't just give up, get up and preach whatever comes to his mind. He grounds what is going on in the Word of God as he quotes from Joel and begins to explain this is what was prophesied and what you are seeing is based in the Word of God. And we'll see that going forward today as we understand and examine the sermon by Peter. We will see that he grounds it even more in the Word of God. We got spirit-filled preaching, Bible-based preaching, and Christ-exalting preaching. See that? Because what is Peter talking about? He's ultimately talking about Jesus. That's what real preaching is, beloved. It's spirit-filled, it's Bible-based, and it's talking about Jesus. It's pointing people to Jesus. It's making much of Jesus. And as we will examine the latter parts of Peter's sermon, you'll see what Peter is talking about is Jesus. That's what real preaching is. And in that sense, then, Peter sets the stage for what New Testament preaching would be. Of the apostles, you could see here, of the apostles who would go on and give their lives to the proclamation of the gospel, to the preaching of Christ. What Peter does is he set the table. Peter was first. He sets the table And he shows and he reminds the other apostles what true preaching is. And I can imagine them all standing there listening to Peter in amazement as Peter preached for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? They might have heard Jesus say it from time to time. But now, Jesus is gone. Who's going to proclaim it? And Peter stands up, and you can see the amazement on the apostles' faces. Peter is preaching the gospel. He sets the table for this is what they will all give their lives to. It's a wonderful message. It's a wonderful sermon. In fact, he not only set the table for the apostles, he sets the table for us. In this sermon here really is the example of biblical, spirit-filled, Christ-centered proclamation. 
It's wonderful, beloved. It's wonderful. Let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at it and notice. Notice the, notice the form and the makeup of Peter's sermon. And there's three things I want us to notice. Notice the subject of his sermon. Notice the point of his sermon. Then notice the goal of his sermon. Now, remember, we're already halfway through the sermon, so Peter's now getting to the end. And even in the end, you could see where his focus really was, even from the beginning. Because you see it in the subject of his sermon. And the subject of his sermon, as we've already mentioned, Peter preached Jesus. Pentecost, Pentecost was about the power of God poured out for the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It was the power of God in Jesus Christ. And so when we read and and even listen again to Peter's sermon, that's what we see. Jesus was his subject. And when the the Spirit was poured out upon Peter, there's no doubt that Peter probably spoke a few words in tongues. He spoke a few words in tongues, but do you do understand that he spoke most powerfully and he spoke most eloquently when he spoke in his native tongue? When he spoke with understanding, as Paul said. We seem to get it backward today, don't we? The fascination with the miraculous. Peter, on that day, probably spoke a few words in tongues. But what he spoke most powerfully and what he spoke most eloquently, beloved, he spoke most clearly. And it was Jesus. That was his subject. It was Jesus. This Jesus he preaches that Jesus is a man approved by God. Isn't that what the text says? Men of Israel, this Jesus, this Jesus that he is proclaiming is a man attested to by God. He was a man, Peter says, endorsed by God. He was a man endorsed by God. He was a man from God. He was a man, the son of God. And this endorsement was upon Jesus all the days of his life. Peter's not saying anything that those around Jesus wouldn't have known. Even from his birth. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, and don't fear, for the child born to you will be called holy. He is the Son of God. There's God's endorsement. There's God attesting to who Jesus is. Even before he's born, he's my son. He's not only attested to Jesus at his birth. Remember, he attested to Jesus at Jesus' baptism. When he comes to John for a baptize, being baptized, and John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And the Bible says that when Jesus got up out of that water, The Holy Spirit came down and ascended upon Jesus as a dove, and a voice from heaven 
spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There it is, God attesting to Jesus. But not just at his birth, not just at his baptism. You recall at the transfiguration as well. When he's up on the mountain with his select disciples. And he reveals to them his glory. And there is on the mountain with them the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And suddenly Moses disappears and suddenly Elijah is gone. And there is only Jesus, the Bible says. And then the voice from heaven comes again and says, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. He was a man attested to by God. But not only in his birth and not only in his baptism and not only at the transfiguration, you do understand all the days of Jesus' ministry, God is attesting to him, Peter says, by way of miraculous power through the miracles. Well, Jesus says, you may not have been there. I mean, Peter says, you may not have been there when he was born. You may not have been there when he was baptized. You, pro- you were not there when he was transfigured. But you knew as he went about, he went about doing miracles. Everyone could attest to that. And those miracles had a purpose, didn't they? They had a purpose. The primary way that Peter says that God confirmed the life and work of Jesus was through miracle-working power. What are miracles? What are miracles? Well, C.S. Lewis defined a miracle as an interference with nature by supernatural power. Simple enough, I suppose. Wayne Grudem defined a miracle as a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people, people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Here's a simple definition for what it's worth. It is the extraordinary and often inexplicable display of God's person and work in the world. And if that's the case, then, beloved, contrary to popular belief, miracles are not everyday occurrences. Miracles are not common. They are not like leprechauns. You need to go looking for them under every rock and cranny. Miracles come into the world by the power of God, by the extraordinary manifestation of God's person and work, for a purpose. And we see the purpose here. In the life of Jesus, they were to attest to Jesus, to others around Jesus, that Jesus indeed was the Son of God. And therefore, miracles, you see, he gives three distinctions. He gives three descriptions of what a miracle is, even in the life of Jesus. And they point to something significant in signifying that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Miracles are wonder-working powers. Mighty works, Peter says, 
The word there is power. Because miracles upon Jesus was to show that Jesus indeed had the power of God. The power to cast out demons. The power over the elements. He had power that only belonged to God. Miracles in his life attested to that. Not only wonder-working powers, but indeed these miracles were wonders. This was for the purpose of drawing attention and causing people to fear God, to strike awe in people. You remember when the disciples were with Jesus on the boat and they were going across the sea and Jesus was asleep? And the storm began to rage like no storm they had ever seen before. And they feared for their life. They thought they were going to die. And they wake up, Jesus said, Master, do you not care that we perish? And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And he gets up and he speaks to the wind and he speaks to the sea. And everything is calm. And what happens? The disciples are in awe. And they say, what manner of man is this? Who have we hitched our train to? That was the point. That was the point. This is not no ordinary man walking among you. This is the Son of God. He has power. He strikes all. Because he performed signs. Signs. You know what signs do, don't you? Signs are markers that point you to a deeper, more profound, even more important reality. If the sign says East Point Church that way, you don't stop at the sign and have worship. You go follow the sign to where they're meeting. So the miracles are signs. They pointed to a deeper, more significant reality. And that reality is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? The point was not to get caught up in the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead. The point was to understand, who is this that is raising this man from the dead? Yeah, Lazarus is raised. Wow, wonderful. But that ain't the point. Who are you that you can do that? When people miss the significance of miracles, beloved, even in the life of Jesus, do you know Jesus refused to do them? After he fed the 5,000, the Bible tells us in John, the next day they followed after Jesus because they wanted him to perform more miracles. They wanted more bread. They, they, they wanted more fish. They wanted Jesus to do more tricks. And Jesus said, I am not your clown. I am not here to perform tricks for you. You want me, you're going to have to eat of my body. You're going to have to drink of my blood. Uh, no. <laughs> We ain't ain't sign up for all that, man. We just wanted a trick or two. Beloved, contrary to what people do today, 
There were no miracle crusades. There were no signs out front. We have a miracle working service this evening. Because the point wasn't the miracles. The miracles were signs that pointed to a deeper reality. Do you want to know who this man is? He is man, attested to, approved, and confirmed by God himself. This man, Peter says, is the man that we're proclaiming. This man, attested to by God with miracles and wonders and, and signs. This man, not only attested to by God, what was, but was offered up by God as well. Jesus was not only confirmed by God. You do understand that Jesus came into the world so that God would offer him up as a sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says here that he was handed over or offered up. Not by Pilate. Not by Herod. Not by Judas. He was offered up by God. He was turned over by God. He was delivered up to be crucified by God himself. But notice what Peter does. He puts it within the framework, this God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's an amazing truth that Peter has on his mind as he is preaching to these people on this marvelous day reminds us of God's sovereign ordaining power. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 18, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. No one's going to take Jesus' life. He came to lay it down. Nobody's going to crucify Jesus if Jesus does not desire to be crucified. reason that Christ came into the world is according, Peter says, to the foreordained sovereign plan of God. God offered Jesus up to be crucified. This is important for us to try to get our minds around because it shows us that the most important event in human history, God is not going to leave up to the fickle and frail will of human beings. There's nothing more important than Jesus going to the cross. And God ordained it. And it was going to be done. And yet, notice what Peter says. And yet, human beings, both Jews and Gentiles, are responsible for taking Jesus and putting him to death. And therefore, Peter charges them with the crime of all crimes. Wow. You try to get your mind around that. In theological circles and studies, we call that concurrence. Concurrence. 
And basically what concurrence means is the understanding that God's sovereignty and human decisions work together to bring about God's desired and decreed will. And this cooperation between God's sovereignty and human decisions does not relieve human beings from one moment of their moral responsibility, nor does it indict God for human sin. And that's a fancy way of saying there's no way you're going to understand how that works. But you know the Bible says it. The Bible says it. God offered Jesus up according to the foreordained plan of God. And yet, charges Jews and Gentiles with the crime of the century. That's how God works in the world, beloved. He is bigger than you and I. He is a big God. And if you're going to know the, Bi- the God of the Bible, you're going to have to know a big God, sovereign God, powerful God, who is not subject to the whim and will of human beings. He is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and yet he holds each of us responsible for the sin that we commit in our lives. In Genesis chapter 45, the Bible reminds us of the life of Joseph, Joseph's brothers, sold him into slavery in Egypt. The hard life that Joseph had in prison before God raised him up to be second in command in all of Egypt was because of the jealousy and the hardness of heart of his brothers. The sin of his brothers was the reason Joseph was in Egypt. And yet in chapter 45 of Genesis, in verse 7 and 8, Joseph tells his brothers, God sent me here. God has done this. God has orchestrated and ordained these events so that you and I and our whole family might be saved. It's called, beloved, concurrence. It's a wonderful doctrine to try to get your mind around as you seek to understand the pain, as you seek to understand the often uncertainty and insecurities in your life. Know that there is a sovereign God working all things out for your good and his glory, including your sin. It's amazing. Christ being delivered up and crucified according to the immutable, foreordained plan of God, and yet the sinful hands who did it, I held accountable for doing it. This God, this Christ, this Jesus Peter is preaching about, 
is the Jesus that was attested to by God. He is the Jesus who was offered up by God. He is the Jesus who was crucified by sinful hands. But this is the Jesus who was raised from the dead by God. You see there, Peter doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave Jesus in the grave. He doesn't leave human beings helpless or hopeless. He doesn't leave Christ in the grave. And the guys that he are talk, he's talking to, he doesn't leave them without hope. But he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. Our hope is not lost, beloved, because God has raised him from the dead. This Jesus, ultimately, who was crucified, he was raised. And that's why we preach the resurrection. That's why we preach it. The resurrection was and still is key. The faithful Christian proclamation. If it's going to be faithful, Peter was going to have to get there. And he did, beloved. He got there powerfully. And he not only got there, he stayed there. He stayed there. The point is, you can say a lot of things about Jesus. You can say a lot of good things about Jesus. But if you don't proclaim that he has been raised from the dead, you haven't said enough. That's the point. You can talk about the miracles all you want to. You can talk about his teaching all you want to. You can talk about how he's going to allow, uh, show you how to live a good life and to love and be pleasant neighbors all you want to. If you don't get to the resurrection, you haven't said a thing. That's the dividing line. That is what makes all the That's why we're here this morning. We're here this morning because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's why you're a Christian. Because he's been raised from the dead. Other men had been crucified. Jesus was raised from the dead. And notice, and notice what, what Peter does. He, he grounds his point again in the Scriptures. Points to the Bible. See, you don't have to believe me. Let's listen to David. And he points to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He tells them that David said it would happen. He said, now when you read David before, you didn't believe him. Do you believe him now? Do you believe him now? You didn't understand David, but do you understand him now? I can hear Andrew in the background when Peter is preaching. He said, preach it, brother. Preach it. And I can, I can, I can hear John on the side saying, make it plain, preacher. Make it plain. He is drawing upon David and showing them right before their eyes. God has told you this is going to happen. says in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul, David says. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
And then notice what he says. He said, brothers, now, I don't need to tell you, but uh, David is dead. David is dead. David is buried. And we know where the tomb is. Like my man Shalin would say, Abraham is dead. Moses is dead. David is dead. But Jesus is alive. Elvis is dead, Michael Jackson is dead, and Tupac is dead, but Jesus is alive. That's the point that Peter is making, beloved. Jesus is alive. That's why we're here. That's why we sing. That's why we preach. Jesus is alive. You don't have to say amen. That's all right, because I know in my heart Jesus is alive. I wouldn't be here this morning, beloved, if he wasn't. He is alive. It's the point that Peter is making on the day of Pentecost. What you're seeing is the fruit of the resurrected Christ. He's alive. We've seen him. We've talked to him. We've fellowshiped with him. He is no longer dead. He is alive. That's the subject of his preaching. How much time do we have left? Because it's only starting, beloved. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. He preaches Christ, the resurrected Christ. But not only know the subject of his preaching, notice this point. What, are you, what does it all matter, Peter? Well, he tells them. In verse 36, he says, Therefore, and whenever you see the therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is there for, right? And he is summing up. He, in other words, he says, in conclusion, brothers, therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has declared to be both Lord and Messiah. That's the issue. That's the issue. That was the point of the miracles. This Jesus, whom you crucified, he is the Lord. John Frame defines a miracle as this. He says, miracles are the extraordinary manifestation of God's lordship. That's what they're doing. They are letting you know who is the Lord. And when Jesus is performing miracles, it is a manifestation of the fact that this is the Lord. And so Peter concludes his preaching with this all-important point. This Jesus, whom you handed over to be crucified, buried, and was raised again, this Jesus is now your Lord and Christ. Jesus Lord. And this is the point of all good preaching. It's a proclamation of the Lordship of Christ. That Jesus is the Lord. It is a display of his Lordship. Remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, as we saw last week, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus, and this lordship is 
a demonstration or a manifestation of his kingship. Him to be Lord is for him to be king. As it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then it goes on to say, but who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So everything on the earth belongs to the Lord. Who is the Lord? He is the king of glory. Jesus is Lord. He is king. Everything in heaven and on earth belongs to him. This is why he says in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 that all power and authority is given unto him. Because he is king. He is Lord. All of heaven All of earth belongs to him, including salvation. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, salvation belongs to who? The Lord. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying it's all Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus who was buried, this Jesus whom God has raised from the dead, this Jesus now is proclaimed before your hearing as the Lord of glory. To be saved, beloved, and this is the point that Peter is getting to, to be saved, you must come to Jesus because he's the Lord. And this is the testimony of the church. This is always a testimony of faithful preaching. You are not getting saved apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You must acknowledge him as Lord. And some today would like to suggest that a person can be saved without Jesus. Beloved, that is not only foreign, that is far from what Peter was preaching. For according to Peter... And according to the testimony of Scripture, you must come to Jesus. And not simply because he's the Lord, but you have to come to Jesus because he is the Christ. That he is Savior. Because he could be Lord and maybe not be Savior. But Peter here says, no, he is Lord and Savior. So why you have to come to them. He is the long-waited and expected one from Jesus. Peter is preaching to these Jews here gathered in, in Jerusalem, and these are men and women who would have longed for the Messiah to come. They would have read their Old Testament and every year looking for the Messiah to come and to deliver them, to be God in their midst and to redeem them and to establish them and their kingdom and his kingdom upon the earth once again. And Peter says, he has come. You crucified him, but God has raised him from the dead. This is the Messiah, the one that says in Isaiah chapter 53, who will bear our sorrows and carry our griefs. He's the one. He's the one. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that Jesus whom you crucified is not only Lord, 
but he is the Christ. He is the one you have long waited to see. Come thou expected king. Here he is. Here he is. That Jesus whom you mocked, he is Savior. That Jesus whom you denied, he is Lord. That Jesus whom you made fun of, that Jesus whom you tried to dismiss, that Jesus whom you tried to ignore, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Now that is, that is an important point to understand. Because all over the world, what people are doing is mocking Christ. They are dismissing him. They are fashioning and forming arguments. They think that dismantle the argument for the lordship and messiahship of Jesus Christ. But in all of eternity, the voice will come from Peter saying, that Jesus whom you mocked, that Jesus whom you dismissed, that Jesus whom you ignored, that Jesus who you tried to argue away, that Jesus is now Lord and your master. That Jesus. This is why, beloved, the Bible says that every tongue shall confess. Where? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. There will be no realm of existence where the truth will not resound that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That Jesus. See the point that Peter is making? It's a point that we try to make every week. You need Jesus. There is no other way. You have no other chance. You have to embrace Jesus or all is lost. He is the Messiah. He is the only Lord and Savior there is. And therefore, beloved, He is the only Lord and Savior you need. You gotta acknowledge Him as the Lord and know Him as your Savior. And they did, didn't they? And you see that in the goal of Peter's preaching. The goal of that first sermon is the goal of every sermon, that men and women would believe upon Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the desire. That's the goal. That's the ends for which Peter preached. That's the end for which we proclaim every week, that men and women would believe upon Jesus, have faith in Christ, repent of our sins. And after hearing Peter preach, notice what the Bible says about these men, that they were cut to the heart. They were pierced through by the word of God. And that piercing, you know what it did? This is how you know that you've really been pierced by the word of God. The self-applause is gone. The self-congratulation is gone. You realize your helplessness. You realize your alienation from the God that is being proclaimed. You realize apart from Christ, you are lost. You realize that. 
And it is an overwhelming experience. It's what it means to be cut to the heart by the word of God. It pierces you. It exposes who you are and the wretchedness of your own heart and your helplessness to do anything about it. And you see that. They were cut to the deepest recesses of their being. And they responded to Peter and the all the disciples. They looked around and said, well, brothers, what are we going to do? Man, I'm, I've been preaching quite a lot. I might have had one person ever say that to me. And I about just fell over. Are you kidding me? What are we supposed to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Repent. Repent. What is repentance? Beloved, it is a heartfelt sorrow over sin and the turning away from it. It It is the renouncing of sinful thoughts, sinful feelings, and sinful actions, and determining no longer to entertain them. Archie Sproul says, Repentance is a prerequisite, necessary condition for salvation. Always has been. As long as there's sin in the world, always will be, beloved. You must repent. And the call for repentance has always been in the gospel proclamation. This idea of not preaching repentance is a new thing. The proclamation of the gospel has always historically been accompanied with the call to repentance. Nobody gets saved who refuses to repent of their sin. This is why when they ask Peter, what can we do? First thing Peter says is repent. Repent of your sin. Why? Because this is what Jesus said. Peter is only doing what he saw Jesus do. This is what John the Baptist did. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist went out preaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent of your sin. It tells us also in Mark chapter 1 and, and 15, when Jesus went proclaiming, what did he go out proclaiming? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice, Paul, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. There, standing there among the Greek scholars and intellectuals of his day, what does he say to them in chapter 17 and verse 30? God commands every person everywhere to repent. Repentance. And beloved, do understand what the call of repentance is. The call to repent is not a call for you to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. 
That is not the call of repentance. The call of repentance is not a call to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. No, it is a call to acknowledge that you are unclean and you need to be clean. It is a call to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. It is a call to acknowledge that you are lost. And you have just learned that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The call to repentance is to say, I am sick and I need a physician. My heart has been cut open and I need a doctor to mend me back up. Peter says, repent. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. And be willing to turn from those sins and know that Jesus came for that very purpose to save sinners from their sin. And then he says, and be baptized. And baptism, beloved, is simply put a sign of faith. It is the signature of your confession. If you have repented, the sign of that repentance is being washed in the waters of baptism. Now, Peter is not saying here that you, in order to be saved, you must be baptized. But what he is saying is that those who are saved will submit to baptism because it is the necessary sign to demonstrate that repentance has happened. It's an outward sign of this inward reality that is going on in your heart. You have been washed by the blood of Christ. Demonstrate that inward washing by by submitting to the outward washing and telling the world that you're no longer your own, but you belong to him. And so the Bible says, Those who receive the word were baptized. Isn't that true? It is an evidence that you have indeed received the word of God. What do I do? What do I do? I believe. What do I do? I repent. What do I do? And show forth how you have received the word by submitting yourself unto baptism. Beloved, when Peter preached the gospel here, he reminds us that the gospel is not a negotiation. The gospel is a command. It's not a negotiation. You don't come to God and say, well, God, you do this, and I'll do that. And God says, well, if you do that, then I'll do this, and, and we'll kind of work this thing out, and somehow we'll bring it all together, and you and I just get along and be happily ever after. It is not a negotiation. 
The gospel is a command. And it comes to us as commands. You do understand. There's some key words that the Bible gives us for the gospel proclamation. Peter gives us one here, but there are some others, and they are commands. The Bible says, come. When the gospel is proclaimed, Isaiah chapter 55, God says, come. Come, all you who thirst, come. If you're hungry, come. Come and buy. Not with money, not with your price. You come. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, tells them, come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You just come. We're not negotiating. I'm here. You come. That's why the songwriter said, I came to Jesus as I was, weary, wounded, and sad. And I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Why? Because I heard my Savior say, come, and I came. It's not a negotiation. We proclaim the gospel. We tell people, you come. But not only come, you know what the Bible says about the gospel? Hear, doesn't it? Hear. Listen. This is not a negotiation. Shut up and hear this. You need a Savior. It's Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. Incline your ear to me. Hear that your soul may live. Hear. Hear. Today is the day of salvation, and now is the time. Do not harden your heart, but if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Listen. Hear. It's not a negotiation. The gospel says come. The gospel says hear. You know what else it says? It says believe. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas is in jail, and the power of God, the Spirit of God comes and relieves them from the prison. And then the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe. Believe. We're not here to negotiate. You just believe. You come. You hear. You believe. Peter says, you preach the gospel, you tell them. You repent. Repent. That's the only proper response. Repent and turn from your sin. As in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent and be baptized. It says here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And then God commands all people everywhere to repent. That is a command from God. And that's what we proclaim. Because the gospel is non-negotiation. Because he's Lord. And since he's Lord, he gives commands. And the command is to hear. The command 
is to come. The command is to believe. The command is to repent. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Come, 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 come. Hear, hear what he's saying this morning, beloved. Hear, believe what you are hearing. Believe it and repent of your sin. Don't let the day go by, this day, right now. If you hear what the Spirit is saying, don't you leave here and not come to Jesus through repentance. Don't you leave here not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day. Now is the time. Believe and repent.